Heavenly Father, I just, we just come to you this morning again. This is an opportunity for us to pray, to show our faith that you answer prayer. I know that there have been folks in this church praying for Don's granddaughter. And Lord, I pray right now, we want to pray for Don's daughter as um, she's going through this situation. And pray that you would give them strength and that they would be dependent upon you. Father, I thank you that for this gift of being able to bring these things before your throne through the, na- the matchless name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, thank you. Well, good morning and welcome again to Grace Bible Church. You know, in these, I call these my, this is my pre-sermon remarks. I often tell you or remind you of how precious it is to gather with the saints uh, on a Sunday morning, on the Lord's Day. And we now have, as a body, we now have weekly care groups, uh, which we have, we have started. And if you haven't joined a care group, if you haven't joined a care group, I pray that you would do so. And if you have joined one, if you, if you are part of a care group, I pray that you will consider diving into body life through that care group. Obviously, obviously, your small group, your small group doesn't replace Sunday morning worship. But involvement will, I would argue, enhance your connectedness to the body of Christ. This past week, I read an interesting article in the Wall Street Journal about church attendance after COVID. According to the article, in-person church attendance is roughly 30 to 50% lower than it was before COVID. The Barna organization reported one in three practicing Christians stopped attending church since, since COVID, and as many as 32% of those who attended worship in person prior to meet, uh, the COVID meeting restrictions seem to not only have quit attending worship as per the mandates, but have unplugged online as well. Now, you don't have to be very bright or even a prophet to to have seen this coming. And once folks unplugged from the church of the body of Christ, there really isn't much holding them back from unplugging completely. I'm sure that some have pulled back completely while others have realized that other preachers are far more interesting than theirs, so they've plugged in elsewhere. But you know, and I, and I also understand that people had legitimate concerns about COVID, but we cannot underestimate the dangers of disengaging from fellowship, from the fellowship and encouragement of the body of a body of believers. I agree with Dan DeWitt, who wrote, We are not disembodied souls who only require an internet connection and a smart device to meet our deepest needs. We can't just upload relationships. If social media has taught us anything, it's revealed how shallow our digital connections can be if not anchored in real-life togetherness. Sadly, a lot of people are migrating to online options as a long-term solution. He says this, beware. These low-commitment, impersonal forms can be a gateway for complete dropout. There's too much at stake to take this lightly, end quote. During COVID, some churches recognized this danger, so they began to push small group gatherings within the body as an alternative, 
get this, as an alternative to Sunday morning worship. They stream the sermon and they work through the implications together as a small group. One church in Phoenix has transitioned to small groups as their model. This is what they do. The pastor is quoted as saying, we are trying to build something that is COVID-proof and recession-proof, end quote. Now, as I said earlier, we've started small groups at Grace Bible Church, and we believe, we believe, I personally believe, and I know the other men believe, that your involvement with a small group should enhance your connectedness to the body, not take away from it. And, and I'm talking the entire body, right? COVID has certainly changed the way people view churches, and it has also changed the landscape of churches. And the landscape will continue to change as current cultural tides continue to rise. According to the same Wall Street Journal article, Barna Group's research suggests that tens of thousands of churches are at risk of closing because of membership declines and other long-term problems that the pandemic made worse. A dip in tithes and offerings is forcing some to prepare for permanently smaller budgets with less real estate, fewer staff members, and smaller programs. Now, end quote, that's the end of that quote. Personally, personally, I believe that God is purifying His church. Even the most eschatologically optimistic theologians agree that Western culture is in for a potentially rough patch, or you could say particularly rough patch. The church may be facing a few years of persecution. Now, Satan, we have to understand, Satan will never let pass any opportunity to attack God's people. We see that in Ephesians 6, the the passage that we're in. Here's the thing. Here's here's what we have to understand. Churches that are focused on God's priorities, not man's priorities, churches that are focused on God's priorities will thrive in the coming years and decades. See, at Grace Bible Church, we haven't seen a decline in membership right? We haven't seen a decline. We've seen actually an increase. And the reason is, is because we take a high view of Scripture. Churches that take a high view of Scripture, churches that take a high view of what God is doing in the church and through the church will flourish, while churches that fail to preach and teach God's Word and fail to live God's Word in a meaningful meaningful way will falter. That's the truth. John 17, 17, in Jesus' word, sanctify them in the truth. Your word, thy word is truth. We need to be, as, as churches, preaching the truth. Uh, John 8, 31, 32, Jesus says to his disciples, or saying to some Jews, he says, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free or make you free. Beloved, it's not the Constitution or a branch of government or a political policy that sets us free, sets man free. It's the truth of God's Word. We're set free from the dominion of Satan and the power of sin by the truth of God's Word. And, and beloved, I believe that that is what Paul has had in mind when he told Timothy in 2 Timothy 4 two, preach the Word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. And that's what we need to be doing as a church in this century, in this 21st century, in the culture that we find ourselves in. 
Because we are in a battle, and that battle is escalating. And today, today we're returning to our series called Preparing for Battle. Uh, we will be, we're going to be looking at this final piece of the armor, the sword of the Spirit. So let me pray again. We're a praying church, so we're going to pray again, and then I'm going to read the text, and we're going to dive into this morning's text. Heavenly Father, I just pray right now that your word would not return void. You've promised that it won't. So I pray that we would be attentive to what you have to say through your scriptures. In Christ's name, amen. Ephesians 6.10. Ephesians 6.10, we've been going through the armor of God. Paul writes, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day. And having done everything to stand firm, stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, in addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Mary Jones was a little Welsh girl, the daughter of a poor weaver. In 1794, at the age of 10, she began to lay by all the money she could possibly save with her heart set upon buying a Bible. In 1800, after six years of carefully saving her pennies, she had the required amount. She had been directed to the Reverend Thomas Charles of Bala, who had acquired a number of Bibles for distribution. Mary walked barefoot 25 miles to his hometown. That evening, as she had been instructed by her pastor, she came to the home of David Edwards, a Methodist pastor of that city or that town. As it was too late in the day to see Reverend Charles, she spent the night at Edwards' home. Early the next morning, David Edwards and the little girl were in the street and on their way to the residence of Thomas Charles. They knocked and were received in. David Edward introduced Mary, and she told her story of longing for a Bible and the years of saving up for it. After hearing her story, Mr. Charles turned to David Edwards and said sadly, I am indeed grieved that this little dear girl has come such a long way to buy a Bible and that I should be unable to supply her one. The consignment of Welsh Bibles that I received from London last year was months ago, accepting a few copies which I kept for friends whom I must not disappoint. Unfortunately, the society that has supplied the Bibles to Wales with, or has supplied Wales with the Scriptures declines to print anymore. And where to get Welsh Bibles to satisfy our country's need, uh, need I do not know. Until now, Looking up 
into Mr. Charles' face with eyes of full of hope and confidence, knowing that she was going to get a Bible. But as he spoke those words to David Edwards, she noticed his overclass understand the full import of his words. And she buried her face in her hands and she wept. After a few moments, <coughs> Mr. Charles rose from his seat and laid his hand on Mary's head. With his own voice broken and unsteady, he said to her, My dear child, I see that you must have a Bible. Difficult as it is for me to spare you one, it is impossible, yes, simply impossible, to refuse you. He turned to the cupboard behind him and he opened it and drew forth the Bible. Then laying a hand once more on her head, he said to Mary, she looked at him with inexpressible joy and thank thankfulness. If you, my dear girl, are glad to receive this Bible, tr truly glad am I to give it to you. Read it carefully. Study it diligently. Treasure up the, the sacred words in your memory and act up to its teachings. As Mary wept tears of delight and gratitude, Mr. Charles turned to his friend and said, David Edwards, is not such a sight as this enough to melt the hardest hearts? A girl so young, so poor, so intelligent, so familiar with the Scripture is compelled to walk all of this distance, about 50 miles there and back, to get a Bible. From this day, I can never rest until I find some means of supplying the pressing wants of my country that cries out for the Word of God. Now, the end of the story. I think that's Paul Harvey, right? It was out of Mary Jones' love for God's Word and her savings and her, and her prayer that the, that the British and Foreign Bible Society was formed in 1804. With the initial backing of William Wilberforce, this society has distributed Bibles for, for over 200 years to over 200 countries. You see, one little girl's desire for the Word of God triggered a push to distribute Bibles to every man, woman, and child in the entire world. She, this little Welsh girl, she exemplified the psalmist's words in Psalm 119.11, Your word I have treasured in my heart that I may not sin against you. Studying Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus, uh, we made it through to Paul's final exhortation to the saints. Now, it's critical to recognize that Paul's concern is for the church to continue to live uh, according to the truths that he has taught him or that he has taught them during his time in Ephesus. In Ephesians 4, 1 through 2, through 2 he reinforced this concern by exhorting the church to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which he had actually described in chapter 1 and chapter 2 of this letter. In chapters 4 and 5, and the first 10 verses of chapter 6, he has further described this worthy walk by giving four more walk statements. We've studied them all. In 4.17, he encouraged them to no longer walk as the Gentiles walk. In chapter 5, verse 2, he exhorted them to walk in love. In chapter 5, verse 8, he told them to walk as children of the light. And in 5.15, he called them to walk in wisdom. Now, as part of that walk of wisdom, Paul encouraged the church to be filled with the Spirit, according to 
the apostle singing and making melody in your heart characterizes this filling. Now, being subject to one another in the fear of Christ also characterizes the Spirit's filling. Now, here's the thing. When we live, when we choose to live, when we choose to walk, using Paul's words, according to uh, biblical principles, according to what the Word of God says, and when we choose to walk in a way that's described by Paul in chapters four, chapter 4 through chapter 6, verse 10, we will be distinct from the world. Do you not understand that? We will be distinct from the world. In the case of the church at Ephesus, their lives look completely different from the surrounding culture, which, by the way, is dominated by the Temple of Artemis, or Diana. The Ephesian saints, those who were part of the body of Christ in Ephesus, had left those lifestyles when they had been saved by Christ. They no longer walked as the Gentiles walked. Now, Acts 19, we've gone through it a couple of times, describes the satanic activity which surrounded the church. You see, these saints who were walking according to Scripture had been attacked by evil forces from the beginning. And Paul recognized that they would continue to be in the enemy's crosshairs. He knew they needed protection from the enemy's attack. In summary, he called them to walk in a way that differentiated themselves from the world around them, and he knew that it would draw enemy fire. He knew, he understood that that's what's going to happen because he had lived it himself. Therefore, in Ephesians 6, 10 through 12, he exhorted the believers to be strong in the Lord and put on the armor of God and to stand firm and to resist the schemes of the devil. Now, this leads us to verse 13. In verse 13, chapter 6, verse 13, which we began to look at a, a few weeks ago, Paul reiterated the urgency for the Christian to take up the full armor of God to be able to resist the evil of our day. In verses 14 through 17, Paul gives six critical pieces of armor that we need for resisting the devil. Now, we must prepare. We've seen this already. This is review. You must prepare by, prepare by girding yourself with the belt of truth. He says, stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth. Now, we've seen, we've, seen, we, we, we've seen the last few weeks, we've seen that this refers to the readiness, the readiness with the truth, or the readiness, if you will, to even defend the truth of, the, of God's Word. So we have to know God's Word, and we have to know the truth, and, but we have to be ready to defend it. Now, the second preparation is to put on the breastplate of righteousness. In other words, our, our living in righteousness is a breastplate which protects us from the deadly blows of the enemy. When we participate in ungodly lifestyles, in ungodliness, we open ourselves to attack by our enemy. This, this morning, the men were talking about if we live in a certain way, if we, say, if we say that we believe a certain doctrine or a certain way, and we live a different way, it opens us up to attack. And I think that's what Paul is saying here. Now, the third preparation. Shod your, your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. That's in verse 15. Now, we saw that this call, this is a call to live according to the truth of the gospel. We, we said that Paul is speaking of the believer's readiness or preparation with the gospel. 
So when Satan attacks us, we are prepared with the truth of the gospel to withstand his attacks. The, the message of, of the good news that we have, been, we have been adopted as sons through the atoning sacrifice of Christ, we, we know this and we trust this and we live according to it. We've been saved by grace through faith. And above all, that is an encouragement to us as believers. You understand that? Above all, that's, a, that's an encouragement to those who are in Christ. And that encouragement gives us, gives us the footing, going back to it being shod with the, gospel, the preparation of the gospel of peace, peace, this encouragement that we're in Christ, this encouragement that we've been saved by grace through faith, gives us the footing that we need to stand firm and to resist the schemes of the devil. This brings us to preparation four. Again, this is a review. Take up the shield of faith. In verse 16, he says, Paul says, In addition to all taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one. Now, we looked at this piece of armor last week. This is the first piece that we have to take up in addition to the armor that we put on. So this, this is something that we take up. We pick, pick it up. Now, Paul's reference, the, the shield that he's talking about, He's referring to a, a, a large door-like shield used by the Roman soldiers to protect themselves. Now, these shields were used to protect against the blows and the fiery arrows of the enemy. Now, according to Paul in, in Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, we are saved by grace through faith, not as, as a result of works that no one may boast. And it is our faith, then, that not only saves us, so we're saved by grace through faith, and it's not, it's not faith that we've conjured up, it's a gift of God, but it, it, it not only saves us, but our faith is what protects us from, uh, by extinguishing the flaming and poisonous arrows of the evil, evil one. These arrows come to us in the form of temptations arising from this world system. We're constantly bombarded as Christians. Are we not constantly bombarded by the schemes of the devil as they play out in this world? These could be sexual temptations that appeal to our lustful flesh. Now, I want to remind you, the church at, at Ephesus was located again by the, near the temple of Artemis, the Greek goddess associated with fertility. So, so they, they, the, 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 the temptation would have been uh, to their lustful flesh in, in sexual immorality. And we saw that clearly in Ephesians 4 and 5. But the temptation could also be money and power. According to Acts 19, we, saw, we, we looked at it a few weeks ago, there was this thriving business of making idols associated with the temple. So... so they, they, they wanted to be a part of this system, and if they weren't a part of this system, the problem would be that they wouldn't be able to, it wouldn't be easy to, to support themselves. So there's a temptation to go back to that system. Now, they could also, these flaming arrows could also come in the form of, of accusations by the enemy against the saints. The, the, the apostle clearly understood these accusations because he had experienced them on many occasions. He recognized Clearly that it's our faith which protects us from the enemy's temptations and the enemy's accusations. In the case of temptations, our faith allows us to forsake worldly pleasures, sex, money, fame, and power, because we trust that those are fleeting. Then our only satisfaction is going to be found in Christ. 
You see, ultimately we believe that God has something better for us. That's the faith. So we are faced with these temptations, and we as believers trust and believe that God has something better for us. The writer of Hebrews makes this point in Hebrews eleven thirteen through 16. He says, the Old Testament saints from Abel to Abraham died without receiving the promises. They'd been given promises, but they died without receiving them. That, but they trusted that God had prepared something better, a better city for them. That's in verse 16. That's Hebrews eleven sixteen. That 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 they they therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. And they understood that that was better than what they had here. Also, when the poisonous arrows of accusation come our way, by faith we trust God's view of us in Christ. In 2 Corinthians 10.18, Paul defended his apostleship against satanic attack by saying, For it is not he who commends himself that is approved, but he whom the Lord commends. So the point is is that it's it's the Lord who commends us. And it's in the Lord that we find our worth. It's in the Lord that we understand that, yes, we are sinful, but it's by His grace through faith that He has saved us, and now we're in Christ. One time I remember my pastor back in Nevada defending himself against attack by saying they were attacking him, and he said, I promise you that I'm much worse than you believe. I promise you I'm much worse than you even know. You see, he was putting his faith in God's view of him in Christ. He understood his sinful nature. He understood that he was uh, uh, utterly sinful before God. Therefore, it would have been easy to condemn himself just as others had. But he didn't. He didn't. Because he knew who he was in Christ. Again, it's our faith in God's promise to save us that protects us from those kind of accusations. Now, let's, let me give you the fifth Fifth preparation. Again, this is review. Take up the helmet of salvation. Look at your text in Ephesians six seventeen. Uh, he says, "Take the helmet of salvation." You see, the Word of God clearly teaches us that God justifies the sinner. Uh, Romans eight thirty three. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. At salvation, then, according to Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, we're sealed and secured by the Holy Spirit. And, and therefore, nothing, mark this, nothing can separate us from the love of, of Christ. Uh, Romans eight thirty five. who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will dis- tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword. You see, none of those things can separate us. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ Jesus. Even so, even so, our enemy seeks to work us woe. That's that's the song, right? But he seeks to land fatal blows against God's elect. And we know that he will never connect, no matter how hard he tries. The the believer has been supernaturally protected. Having said that, we have to take up the helmet of salvation. We have to live according to that truth 
that we cannot be struck by a fatal blow from the enemy. And living with this understanding frees us to serve Christ without fear of the enemy uh, ever being able to to land that fatal blow. It's called the assurance of salvation. You see, we have salvation in Christ, and therefore we have the future hope of glorification. I said it last week, we are spiritual immortals. As believers, we no longer need to live in fear of Satan or of death. You see, Christ has conquered both. And the truth is, according to Ephesians 1 and 2, we are, Paul says that over and over and over, we are in Christ. We are in Christ. So we need to take up the help of salvation and live as if we're in Christ. Preparation 6, the last one. This is the new one. Take up the sword of the Spirit. Take up the sword of the Spirit. Ephesians 6, 17. Paul says, And the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The word translated sword refers to, a, to the Roman gladius. Uh, this was a short sword up to two feet long. And it was used in those times for close hand-to-hand combat. Up until now, each piece of armor has been solely used for defensive purposes, to defend us against the enemy. This is the only weapon that could be used for offensive or defensive purposes. Now, last week we mentioned a different type of sword which would have been wielded against the soldier. That sword is three to four feet long and would have been used with up to two hands to deliver a crushing blow, especially a crushing blow to the head. Now, the sword here in 617 is not that type of sword. This would have been a smaller, more personal sword used for close, uh, close hand-to-hand fight, fighting. Now, these swords could be incredibly lethal if expertly wielded. Paul uses the, the, this word two other times in Romans 8.35 and 13.4. In both of those cases, he's referring to the deadliness of the physical sword. According to John 18.10, this is the type of sword that Peter used to cut off Malchus' ear. According to Matthew 26.47, it's the type of sword that, was, that the crowd was carrying when Judas betrayed Jesus. And according to Acts 12.2, it's the type of weapon used to martyr John's brother James. In Hebrews 4.12, uh, he, the writer of Hebrews says the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. Again, the same type of sword. In Hebrews 11.37, the author says that some of the heroes of the faith were slaughtered or put to death by that same type of sword. Now, clearly, from these references, we can see that this weapon was quite common in Paul's world. I mean, it's something that was referred to often and used often. A Roman soldier would not have left this weapon uh, without, left home without this weapon at his side, just as today's soldier or policeman would have had his sidearm on him at all times. The soldier in Paul's day would have had his sword, the type of sword that he's talking about. I worked for my dad as a carpenter when I was a kid. I wasn't very much help to him because I was constantly losing my tools. He, I, will never forget, I, I will never forget him saying, he said this over and over and over because I did this a lot. He would say, 
A carpenter without his hammer is like a soldier without a gun. Or a preacher without a Bible. Well, there's a lot of wisdom in that statement, isn't there? Now, I would amend that last part to say, it's like a Christian without his Bible. If we we see that Paul's description as adjectival, this physical sword, uh, this is not a physical sword, that is, it's a spiritual one. But it could be translated, his, uh, his description could be as the sword given by the Holy Spirit. So, so it could be translated as a spiritual sword, or it could be a, a sword that was given by the Spirit or the Holy Spirit. Now, considering the witness of Scripture, I would actually lean toward the latter being Paul's point. You see, because the Word of God is given by the Holy Spirit. In 2 Timothy 3.16 Paul described the word as being inspired by God, or literally, God breathed. In 2 Peter 1.21, Peter described this inspiration as men moved by the Holy Spirit speaking from God. Having said that, it is certainly, the, the word of God is certainly a spiritual weapon suited for spiritual warfare. Paul makes that very point in 2 Corinthians 10.4. He says, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. He's speaking of of, of the Christian. In other words, we're not mere men who, we are mere men who walk around like everyone else. We are humans who are no different than anyone else. Yet we do not war as mere men. We don't use human weapons of war. He goes on to say, For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. Now, Paul doesn't specifically refer to the Word of God as the weapons of our warfare, but I would argue that he's actually referring to Scripture. If that's not the case, then... If that's the case, that is. If that's the case, then Paul is saying that God's Word is divinely powerful for the annihilation of the strongholds of demonic forces. Now, that word divinely powerful connects us back to 1 Peter 1.21 and 2, Peter, or 2 Timothy 3.16, which again teach that Scripture is inspired by God as moved by the Holy Spirit and as they spoke from God. The, the weapon of Scripture then is divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. In, in the words of John MacArthur, it is something more than just a small sword. This is a weapon powerful enough to destroy a fortress. And the word there means just that, a massive stone fortress. We assault these fortresses not with human weapons, but with weapons that are not even part of the flesh, but rather have as their source and their power divine character. As a result, we are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. Now, as you can see, the Word of God is a powerful weapon which can destroy the enemy's plans. It confronts and it brings down the enemy's lies. And it does this because God's Word is truth. It it challenges the evil philosophies that stand against God and His people. It does this because the Bible clearly lays out God's purposes which he brings about according to his will. And we saw the John 17, or we, we, I quoted John 17, 17, sanctify them in truth, your word in tr- as truth. As believers, we need the truth of God's word to fight against our enemy, Satan. 
In other words, our weapon is the truth. And we find the truth in the Word of God. Again, in the words of John MacArthur, the weapon is clearly the truth because the only thing that displaces error is truth. The only thing that smashes what is raised up against the knowledge of God is the true knowledge of God. The only way to bring down lies and deceptions, these ideologies, these anti-God concepts, and bring every thought captive to the obedience of Christ is to bring the truth. Then he says this. That's found in the Word of God. So it, the Word of God, is a formid- the most formidable weapon we have. End quote. We need to recognize that the devil uses his lies to deceive us. And it's the Word of God who, that, that displaces those lies. In John 8, 44, he says, you are, this is the Lord Jesus, you are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the very beginning, and he does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nat- nature, for he, for he is a liar and the father of lies. You see, he is full of lies, and it's only the word of God that shows us his lies. Now we see... We've seen the pattern of the devil's deceptions from the very beginning. In Genesis chapter 2, if you want to turn there, in Genesis 2, God told Adam, in 2:16 and 17, God told Adam, he said, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. Now, in Genesis 3, I want you to notice how, how the, the serpent twisted God's word. In 3.1, it says, that Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field, which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden. You should notice... The difference from what God said to Adam and what Satan is saying to the woman. You see, God said they may eat freely from any tree. Now notice, notice the freedom that is portrayed by God's word. They could eat from any tree of the garden in the garden except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They had the entire garden open to them except for this one tree. But the serpent made it sound like God had limited them. Has God said, you can't eat from any tree of the garden? Look at 3.2. The woman said to the serpent, from the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it, or you will die. Now, you may notice, you should notice, that Eve seems a little uncertain of what God has said. She didn't name the tree. He clearly named the tree. And she added that they were not to even touch the tree. Now, what we have to understand is, is that if you read this, you understand that she did not hear God's command directly. She had not been created yet. So she's repeating clearly what she heard from the man or from Adam. Now, I can even see Adam saying to her, Look, <clears throat> There's this tree right here. Don't even touch it. 
because you're going to die if you do. So, so don't even touch it. But look back at your text. Look back at your text. Verse 4. The serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Again, we see what happens. The serpent is twisting God's word. And, and we know the result. We know the result in verse 6. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable, desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate, and gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. But here's the, here's the deal. Instead of trusting God's word, what did God say? You can eat from any tree of the garden except for this tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Instead of trusting God's word, the first Adam trusted the words of the serpent and the actions of his wife. And he ate from the fruit and plunged the whole of humanity into sin. He didn't trust God's word. He didn't clearly say, but God said. Well, that's what he should have done, right? But God said not to eat from, that, from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He should have said, but God said. But he didn't. Now, turn to Matthew 4.1. Let's look at what the second Adam does. In some ways, it's parallel. Now, the first Adam was in paradise. But Jesus, second Adam, look at verse 1, he was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So we have, again, it's, a, it's parallel. Now, after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he, became, he then became hungry. Now, that scene then sets the, the stage for the deceiver, the devil, to enter in. Again, same, same kind of deal, right? It, it, you had, he entered into the garden, he deceives Eve, now he's going to go in and he's going he's to do the same thing with, with the second Adam, Jesus. Look at Matthew 3, 4, 3, 4, 4, 3. And the tempter came, to him, came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. Now, the devil knew, right? He knew who Jesus was. He knew, he knew that he was the Son of God. Uh, so what was he doing? He was tempting him in his humanity. And how does Jesus respond? How does he respond? Well, look at verse 4. But Jesus answered and said, It is written. Translated again, uh, said another way, God has said, Man shall not live by bread alone, but every word on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. I, I be clear. He says it is written. He is appealing directly to Scripture. Now we ought to learn something from that. We ought to learn something from that. It's important. We need to appeal to Scripture, just like our Lord did. He appealed directly to Scripture to counteract the devil's lies, and with this quote. He affirms that we can trust our Heavenly Father to care for us. He allows at times even physical hunger for the good of His people, but He never, ever, ever goes back on His promises. Look at verse 5. 
Then the devil took him into the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple. Now I want you to notice uh, what the devil does here. He quotes scripture. He says, and, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Now clearly he's twisting, he's, he's quoting Scripture, but he's twisting the meaning of Scripture, using it to tempt Jesus. Now look at our Lord's response. Jesus said to him, On the other hand, it is written, you shall not put your Lord, the Lord your God to the test. Not only did Jesus respond to the deception with the truth, but he also demonstrates that Scripture never contradicts itself. You see, we can trust Scripture when we rightly interpret it and rightly understand it. And this really underscores the critical importance of being a workman rightly dividing the word of truth. That's 2 Timothy 2.15. Now look back at Matthew 4.8. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory and said to him, All these things I will give to you if you fall down and worship me. Again, we see the devil appealing to Jesus' flesh with his deceptions. But look at, look at Jesus' answer in 4.10. Then Jesus said to him, Go, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Now, clearly, we have three different temptations that, that Matthew gives us. Jesus' response clearly models the right response to Satan's lies. And I would argue that this is the point to Paul's imagery in Ephesians 6.17. And take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. As Christians, we are to have the Word of God hidden in our hearts. As the psalmist proclaims, how can a, a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your Word. He goes on. I don't have time to read the entire section, 9 through 16, but take some time afterward to read that. He goes on, he ends with, I shall not, I shall not forget your Word. The Christian who commits themselves to not forget the Word of God will be blessed. They will be like the blessed man of Psalm 1, who's firm, like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and whatever he does, he prospers. In the words of Adrian Rogers, if you have a Bible that's falling apart, you'll have a life that's not. Let me give you a few quick truths about God's Word that we need to know and understand. The Bible is divinely authored. We've, we've seen this. Uh, in the New Testament, Jesus affirmed the Old Testament as the Word of God. Luke 24, 25-27, the resurrected Christ began with Moses, the Pentateuch, the first five, and with all the prophets, he began to explain to the disciples the things concerning himself and all the scriptures. That he's affirming, he's affirming the Old Testament. Then in verse 44 of that same chapter, he says, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. 
He's, he's affirming the Old Testament, and he also authorized the New Testament. In John 14, 25-26, he promised that he would send the Holy Spirit and that he would teach all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. And so, so you had the, the apostles, those who were with the Lord Jesus, who had this promise of the Holy Spirit to be able to, to, be able to recall all that he had said so that they could write it down. The Bible is also divinely inspired. We saw this earlier in 2 Timothy 3.16. Inspired by God. Profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Therefore, since it is inspired by God, therefore it is infallible and inerrant. Infallible and inerrant. Now when we say the Bible is infallible, we mean that the Word of God is incapable of erring. When the Holy Spirit inspired the author of, uh, authors of Scripture, He inspired every word. And God, who cannot lie, uh, therefore uh, every word is true. Titus 1-2 for reference. He works so that it, to make it impossible for the writers to introduce any error in the completed canon. In the words of one commentator, we have... We can have inerrancy without infallibility, but we can't have infallibility without inerrancy. Infallibility, infallibility necessarily results in the text being free from error. The point is, is because it is inspired, it cannot be wrong. It has, there's no way. Because it is inspired and infallible, we believe that it is entirely truthful and has no errors at all in the original manuscripts. Now, there's a lot more there. If you want to know more about this, there's an entire series of six sermons that we did on the Word of God. But it's also authoritative. It's also authoritative. If, if God inspired the Bible, then it has the very authority of God. The writer of Hebrews proclaims in Hebrews 1.1, 1, 1, God, after He spoke long ago to the, prop, to the fathers and the prophets in, any, in many portions and in, in many way, ways, the point is, is that we have the very words of God. In the, the, in the words of John Walvoord, he says, the Bible could be trust, trusted just as much as if God had taken the pen and written the words Himself, physically. Therefore, it's inspired, therefore it's clear. Now, when we say clear, uh, I mean, let me just read this quote. All things in Scripture are not alike plain in themselves, nor alike clear unto all. Yet those things that are necessary to be known, believed, and observed for salvation are so clearly propounded and opened in some place of Scripture or another, that not only the learned, but the unlearned, in a due use of the ordinary means, may attain unto a sufficient understanding of them. The point is, is that the Bible is clear where it needs to be clear. According to Burke Parsons, not everything in Scripture is easy to understand, but what we must understand in order to, uh, what we must understand in order to be saved is clear. The hard sayings of Jesus aren't found only in the Gospels, but, but throughout Scripture. Since Jesus is the ultimate author of Scripture as the eternal Word of God, the point that he's making is, is that what we need to know to be saved is absolutely clear. Therefore, lastly, it's sufficient. It's sufficient. 
2 Peter 1.3, His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him who has called us by His own glory and excellence. We have everything that we need in order to, to know God and to be saved. It's sufficient and in, in order to live for Him. It's also effective. Isaiah 55.11. So, he says, my, my, the word which comes, proceeds from my mouth will not return void or empty. Without accomplishing what I desire, and without succeeding in the matter which, for which I sent it. Here's the point, beloved. Paul says, take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. You have, in the Word of God, you have a powerful weapon in your hand. Powerful. When you use it correctly. So you need to hide it in your heart. So that when the attack comes, you have the Word at hand. Many in the church even, have tried to attack the Word of God, to cast doubt on it. Again, in the words of John MacArthur, he says, precisely because it is so powerful, the Bible has always had its enemies. Unbelievers challenge its credibility. Skeptics question its accuracy. Moral revisionists revisionists depreciate its precepts. Religious liberals dispute its supernatural character. Cultists twist its meaning. But none of that takes away from the power and the sufficiency of God's Word. Now, considering the importance of God's Word, let me give you four clear applications, and this goes quick. Four clear applications. Desire the Word. Delight in the Word. Defer to the Word. And defend the Word. Let me end with a quote by Thomas Watson. Leave not off reading the Bible till you find your hearts warm. Read the Word, not only as a history, but labor to be affected with it. Let it not only inform you, but inflame you. Is not my Word like a fire, saith the Lord? Jeremiah 23, 29. Go not from the Word till you can say as those disciples, did our hearts not burn within us? Luke 24, 32. End quote. Labor in the Word. Go to the Word. And as Thomas Watson says, stay there until your heart burns within you. Let us pray. Gracious Lord, we thank you this morning again. May we trust in your word. May we be sanctified through your word. May we never doubt your word. May we desire your word. May we delight in it. May we always defend it. 
Father, it is in your word that we find life. In Christ's name, amen. God be the glory. I love the last stanza of this hymn. It says, great things he has taught us. Great things he has 